Hello and welcome to another episode of Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. Today we're talking about Netflix with Erin Ruin, Vice President of Content Acquisition at Netflix for more than a decade, participating in the formulation and execution of the company's strategy from the launch of the streaming service, the international market, pricing and culture. Her responsibilities include negotiating and managing all studio relationships, which means over $350 million in annual spend. Joining Erin is Claire Kelly, General Manager of Gemba Europe, who leads the delivery of strategy, including propriety and customised market research across the sport and entertainment landscape. Claire previously held senior roles at Sainsbury's and 21st Group. Topics include Netflix's recent 10-year, $5 billion deal with WWE. It's three hours a week, 52 weeks a year. I mean, it's funny, you read the $5 billion and you're like, Oh, Netflix, they just overpaid to get the rights, which they do. It feels like overpaying, but it's smart money. And then you say, okay, well, it's 10 years. That's, that's okay. It's 500 million a year, right? And then you think about how many, that's 18 million customers every week. And you start to run the numbers. It's not as daunting a number as you think. And now the people are on the service, right? It's part of their thinking in terms of what's going to be next. Their feature film strategy has changed a bit. I think you'll see less of the big Hollywood films and more acquisitions. And I know games, which are live, right? You're interacting in a live way are going to be a big uh, part of what they do. Whether they want it to or not, it was meant to be one of many things that you subscribe to. And, and they're so big now that they can potentially be everything you need. And they're maybe figuring out how to get there. Unofficial Partner is the leading podcast for the business of sport, a mix of entertaining and thought-provoking conversations with the who's who of the global industry. To join our community of tens of thousands of people, sign up to the weekly Unofficial Partner newsletter and follow us on Twitter and TikTok at Unofficial Partner. First of all, welcome, Claire. Welcome back. The last podcast you were on was the highest listened unofficial partner of 2023. I know. Chart topper. Chart topper. I have topper. to say, I feel like there might be something in the calendar of that significant event because we did record it in February, which I feel like might have given people a good run at, at listening. But nevertheless, it was exciting to see, see us at the top of the charts and the enjoyable conversation. So hopefully we'll have another one today. It's one you're overthinking it. It's one of those things that don't reach for data when the news is good. You know, just, just <laughs> let it let the story take care of itself and we'll you know, we'll worry about the data and the all of that stuff at some point. Erin, welcome to Unofficial Partner. Thanks for having me. And you're in LA. I am. And it's six o'clock something in the morning over there, so well done. It is, but it's still probably warmer than it is where you are. <laughs> I think that's a safe bet. I'm just going to set this up. There's a couple of things in my head before we get into the conversation, which is it's a sport and entertainment type conversation. So we're looking, and as we'll go through this, Erin's background, it's got two of the biggest entertainment brands in the world. So we've got Disney and Netflix that are floating around this conversation. And the context is you've got sport in this moment when people working at sport, big sports organizations who now, who want to define themselves or redefine themselves as entertainment offerings and properties and businesses. And they quite often talk about themselves in that sense. So that there's a move from, we run tournaments and we organize events. And now we're, no, we're a 24 seven entertainment company. So 
And then in the ether around this podcast will be last week's news of WWE and Netflix coming together with a massive multi-billion dollar extravaganza deal. And people on LinkedIn, as we speak, are dissecting that for their, you know, their very lives. I just want to get back to some core principles in a way. Erin, why don't we explain your background as a way into to that question? Sure. As you mentioned, I'm a media business development executive. I started my career at Disney in their strategic planning group and then worked in media tech with the emergence of the internet in the 90s when the internet just started. And then eventually was part of the executive management team at Netflix as a startup and really uh, stayed with them through their breaking through as a major media company with streaming. And I've spent the last 10 years doing advisory and board work, which is how I met Claire, because I worked at a sports media company called Otro. Ah, Otro. I remember yep. Otro. I, I came into Otro world. I had, a, I had a sort of very enjoyable few months working alongside the team in London on Otro. That was, a, that was an experience and a half. The convergence in entertainment was the, the thesis of Otro, wasn't it? It was. It absolutely was. And it was sort of via the medium of Lionel Messi, David Beckham, and a few super, you know, Zidane. And yeah, blimey, that takes me back. So when was that? That was about 2018, 19, 18, 20? 19, yep, 20. Wow. So let's, do, let's start with Netflix because that's very current. What do you think, going back to the sort of that period of rapid growth, what, what remains with you in terms of... Were there any mantras, learnings that you sort of thought, well, actually, that's applicable? Just take me back to that period. Sure. I think at the end of the day, laser focus is probably the biggest mantra that um, came out of that time and what and, and the work we did. So we decided, like, we're good at one thing and we're going to stay in our lane. And so I always give the example that when we were running the DVD business, which was really the back the backbone of the business that funded the, the launch into streaming, that we would send people this, they would watch them, they would enjoy them, they'd love them, they'd rate them five stars, and then uh, they'd ship them back. And the studios would beg us, say, look, can, can you sell them the disc, right? Because they would participate in that sale. They already have the disc, we already know they watched it, you know, they want to keep it, people love used discs, and we would say, yeah, so we're not going to do that. And the studios would be like, but, but why? It's so easy. It's already in their house. And we would say, but then, you know, we have to ship them the case, right? Because people really are going to be bitter. And then they, they'd say, we don't have to ship them the case. And then we knew that people eventually would be unhappy with the purchase, no matter how inexpensive it was, because they didn't have a case. So if we had to ship them a case, we needed a different box. And then we could ship them again. We went through, on and on around. And everybody wanted to solve the problems. And ultimately it was, we can do this. But there will always be somebody better who's doing it. At the time, like Amazon was starting, there were, you know, you had all sorts of stores, Best Buy, where you could go in and buy your discs. And it was very convenient. And so, and it was like, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should. And it wasn't in our core competency. Our core competency was just giving people everything they wanted to watch in a very curated way. And so we resisted and we didn't do it. And it really, that 10% of, you know, your brain, people say, well, only take, it'll only take two, three hours a week for me to manage that part of the business. And it's like, yes, but that's three hours that you're not spending on the business that we're in, which is, you know, bringing them the content. So everything, Reed Hastings, the CEO, was so disciplined 
about the focus. And there were so many, there was low hanging fruit, you know, for us in running the business that you could have chased some of these other things and we just didn't do it. And I think it, it obviously, I think it was a significant part of our success. Well, Claire, just so let's just, I, I, it's too easy sometimes to just jump from here and say, what are the applications to support? But that just feels like that question about focus and where you start and stop as an organization, what it is, what's your core competence? I think all of those are at play, aren't they, in sport? They're at play, but it's it's obviously complicated because you're a governing body. You know, take the ECB, World Rugby, the FA. The FA actually is a really interesting one. They don't have just one clear objective to drive revenue. They're about growing the game. They're about performance on the pitch, winning that World Cup. They're about grassroots. And they're about engaging brands in a way that's going to drive a, a kind of greater interest and passion for the game of football. And selling tickets and at Wembley Stadium. That's another bit of their job. Selling tickets at Wembley Stadium. And the same with the ECB. You think about what, what is their, what do they wake up in the morning and do they have that single belief? Are they able to have that single purpose every day where they can make a decision with such tunnel vision? And again, the reality is it's probably not because there's always going to be these competing objectives. There's commercial objectives. There's performance objectives. There's about fan engagement and, and participation objectives. And so I don't think it's as simply applied within the world of sport. But my God, when you see sports organizations operate in the way that Erin's describing, then you can really see the difference it can make. So F1 under Bernie, you know, you're, you're pretty sure he's working, waking up every day and going, my sole objective is to drive more revenue. You know, you think about the NFL and they're able to, although they've got different franchise owners, they're all working collectively to drive more money. And that is a single-minded objective and that will run through all of their decision-making. And so, yes, absolutely. If, if it's within your gift, you can see why that's going to benefit you, you in spades. And I think rugby is a really fascinating business case or use case for this because it's obviously very fragmented, isn't it? You've got world rugby, you've got premiership rugby, you've got the Six Nations, you've got all of the domestic clubs. And within that pyramid structure, there are competing objectives and requirements. And so yeah, to be able to drive more of a single-minded focus within the areas that you are able to influence, yeah, there's no doubt it's, it's, it's a no-brainer if you can get it right. It's just thinking about how you can create that construct within the environment that you have. And, and I think it's, it's not just about purpose. It's about the clarity of how your culture should be perceived, is perceived internally and externally, and how you operate as well within those guardrails. And I think it's really interesting if you, like the Netflix example with Blockbuster, you think about Amazon, they're very intentional around what they're choosing to invest in, in sports rights. I mean, yes, they can be opportunistic, but they're intentionally opportunistic. You know, they, they're going in and they're going, okay, actually, you know, during COVID when we're buying the Premier League rights, it was at a price that was affordable and, and it was an interesting opportunity for them. They've decided to peel back away from, from this latest rights cycle through, through intention. And sometimes sport can be overly driven by emotion. You know, it's how much do I need to pay to be involved in the conversation as opposed to how much should I pay in, you know, in a more of a business mindset. And, you know, I think about Sainsbury's, it's absolutely a corporate business culture. It's not driven by those emotional decisions. And I'm imagining 
that are both Netflix and Disney, that was similar. You made a point there about culture. What's the difference or what what is it, I guess, Erin, is a question. And how do you look at that? Because it is there is a culture question within this. It comes back time and again in terms of it's the sport business question. Can you navigate those two words? And Netflix, Disney, I've got an idea about what the corporate culture might be in both of those organizations. I've never worked there, I'm guessing. Were, is it tangibly different between those two organizations? Well, okay. I would say, yes, they're different insofar as one is an entertainment company and one's a technology company. That's the way I view the fundamental difference between Disney and Netflix. But ultimately, at this sort of happened, I would say, in the 90s, which was, it, I'll start with Disney and Hollywood, you saw this shift away from the creatives running the business to more business-minded people running the business. So, so I worked in uh, Disney's strategic planning group, and that was a, it was a new invention at the, at the studios. And it was like having your own little consulting firm slash bank. It was all, we were all ex-consultants and bankers. I was an investment banker prior that worked there to help, to help run the business and do the deals and evaluate the deals. So you might have the head of the consumer products group come through and say, oh, we want to buy this. You know, we think we should buy this company. And we'd say, we'll take a look. We'll, we'll take a look. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of, it caused some issues and it was, a, we were probably a bit full of ourselves, but, but ultimately the days of having a director rise through the ranks and run a studio, I were kind of coming and going, and then you had more business minded people. And so ultimately that is really what I think what happened to Disney and, and all, a lot of the studios. And then as you get to Netflix, you know, you had you had engineers, really, Reed's background was an, as an engineer. So you had these, that and more business-minded people. So we weren't people who came out of the movie business. We were negotiators and, and things like that. So, so the culture is I, potentially more disciplined. Um, and then, and with that, because you're not ruled by emotion as much, which was, oh, we have to, oh my God, it's, it's Oprah. We have to get this show. You know, you would, we would run the numbers and, you know, I, and we just can justify certain things despite y your emotion. And it was, we had to be very careful. And we had this one little expression, which was, we're not going to make decisions based on a focus group of one. So people would often say, we would be talking about how many units of a film we were going to buy or how much we were going to spend. And somebody would say, oh, yeah, but like, we love that film at our house. Like, my kids love that film. And mm. I'd say, well, okay, great, thanks. You know what I mean? But that, that doesn't justify us buying more units because the numbers aren't, uh, aren't supporting that. Because everybody can get up, but the emotion of, it, uh, of content in any form, even in uh, sport. So, so there was a lot, the, the culture of numbers was very significant at both companies. And then obviously Netflix is very open about being a very data-driven data company. And I think that, that a lot of that created enormous efficiency in the, in the um, purchasing of content through all those years and the merchandising of the content. We didn't take a risk. You know, we weren't filling the wall like Blockbuster with films thinking this, this movie was big and not knowing exactly how many people were going to watch it. You know, data's a gift. So, do you, do you think something is lost in that transition? So you've got the specialist into, as you, as you say, you've got the, the directors in the case of Disney. In sport, you would have people, quite often people, you know, the cliches are, well, they're football people. 
you know, or they're within the, within the bubble of, and they would define themselves as sports people. I'm just wondering in that transition, I can see the efficiency question. I can see the data question. There's a bit of me, and it might be being absurdly romantic, that likes the Paramount Studios story. I've just seen the, in fact, the Godfather, the making of the Godfather story, where you've got all of this stuff going on and those conflicts. And obviously as a punter, all you hear, the, the directors and the film people have a, a route to my, to my ears by just navigating the story. And they always, it, the, in films, the producers are always the bad guys, aren't they? The money, the money grabbing, you know, and again, that, that tension is always at play and it's at play within sport every day. Does anything get lost? How do you stop it being just a technology company or just a data-driven company? Right. That's a tough question. I, I mean, I'm not sure I'm going to give you the answer that potentially you want. Oh, look, it's a balance. It's always a balance. There are accommodations. I think we all know there are announcements or deals that you do that you do for reasons that are greater than just the numbers or the the economics. But but if you're really honest with yourself, it's because you there's value there that will come into account later and turn into dollars. Like the, so. For me, you know, we did a lot of deals early on that you could never justify economically. You could look and say, wow, you just spent a lot of money on that. You're not, you're not going to, yeah, um, how are you going to get the return? But we were building a moat. I mean, it was, if Netflix spends a lot of money licensing content, it will force everybody else to spend a lot of money and a lot of people can't afford to get in. And by then we're, we got, you know, we're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So it, so, and it's not quite answering your question, but I, I do think it's a balance, but I also think sadly, and, and I love, I romanticize those times and I'm a very sentimental person, but I think the ship has sailed. I, I think that, you know, we had an, uh, something happen. Our NFL is a great example. Like we grew up with football. Every family, every household was watching football on Sundays together. And then eventually it, it, it we have two games during the week. And it felt like a rite of passage, like it's a right to be able to watch it. And many people can talk about the, these traumatic moments where they, they did inadvertently, they didn't even understand what was going on and they cut off from a game to the news and how could they do that? And the whole country was, you know, and I think that those days are over. And so last week we had playoff games, which is, our, you know, we're heading to the final and they're huge games. And the NFL sold one of the games to Peacock, which is this tiny streaming service. So viewership went from the other game that was on what, even though we pay for cable, everybody has access. So a public game, 37 million people watched it. And the second game of the day, which was on Peacock, 3 million people watched it. I mean, and that, that, it felt like a violation, but it happened. And we're going to see more and more of that. And we'll eventually probably talk about Disney getting into the, the you know, uh, business, sports business last week. But we've had, which nobody really wants to talk about, our NFL has changed rules of the game to accommodate the audience. So there wasn't enough scoring in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, the games had low scoring. So they make little, you know, now we, you can't, you can barely look at the quarterback and nevertheless tackle him because he's paid so much money. So so little things are happening. So we can pretend it's not a business. I, I, I love to because I love the romance of it. I want to just look at what the strategy, what did strategy mean to Netflix in the past? What were the sorts of conversations you would be having 
at a million subscriber level? Sure. At the time, we were trying to respect the customer. The respect of the customer is really what launched the company. If you think about renting discs in, you know, in 1999, you took it into, you rented your disc in the United States. I know you guys were more purchasers, but we would rent. You'd put it, you know, you'd watch it over the weekend, forget to take it on your way out Monday. You'd go in there and they'd say, $32. You'd say, $32. Well, you're late and you didn't rewind it and whatever. And you were, you, it was contentious relationship. Exactly, by the way, as a reminder, as your relationship is with cable, which is another important factor for a network. So ultimately, the company started with what would make people happier? What is what? Where's the win win? And the win win was subscription, right? Like, you know what? Take the disc and keep it as long as you want. okay? because you're going to pay me, let's say, ten dollars a month to rent as many discs as you want. Now, that may look like a lose to a company like Netflix, but it's a huge win because you're paying me. $10 a month. And if you only rent one disc, I only had to pay my content providers once. If you return it the same day and get another one, that's great for you. And it's also fine for us because we have a super happy customer and you've, you know, done it. So just in the most simplistic sense, stepping back and saying, what do the customers want? They don't want late fees. They don't want those things. The other thing they didn't want, they didn't want their bill to change every month. They didn't, just the way when you rented a disc, sometimes it was $8, sometimes it was 16 Your cable company is the same thing. It's like every time you get the bill, it's a different fee or, oh, somebody watched something on demand, whatever it might be. And so one of our mantras was, you will never change the price. It, it'll be whatever it was, $10.02 every single month. So that was the other thing. And it's a reason we sort of didn't go into some of the other businesses. And a third thing, and these are small, but they add up to giving you a sense of who we are. We, everybody got offered the same thing. If you signed up for Netflix, you got two weeks free. If two years later, somebody signed up for Netflix, they got two weeks free. So here for our cable companies, you know, you you pay, let's say $99 a month to get TV in the house. And then you're looking at the newspaper and it says, you know, sign up $49 a month and you call them up and like, oh yeah, so that's only printed customers. And you say, but when I signed up last year, the offer was $79. Like I only got $20. Yeah, I'm sorry. Cause you know, and you just feel like, wow, they care much more about new customers than they do old customers. Loyalty counts for nothing. So those were things that we were constantly looking at saying, this is such a contentious relationship. If you, I don't know what I, that we surveyed, but we knew that just about everybody would use the word hate when they talk to their cable company. So for us, it was how do you provide content in a way that is effectively a win-win where you're not, you don't have this contentious relationship and where you have a certain level of trust with your customers. So, so that was really how DVD sort of came through. And then as we were thinking about our content, it was let's try to give everybody everything. And, and one we had sort of a law that protected us in the DVD space so we could offer everything. And my job, actually, specifically my job, was to offer everything, to find everything that, that was not porn, to be honest, but every, every disc and, and try to make it available to our customers. And through that, you know, we found personalization was, was our a key to success, a secret sauce. But it also, personalization meant we spent less on content. That, I mean, so if you think about if you are really 
an avid old movie person um, and you see that there's an old movie there and you watch it and then we say, oh, you you love Darcy. Look, look at all the other Darcy we have. And you start renting those. Imagine for content studio, when we had to pay for that content, we paid nothing. I mean, that, you know, it had almost virtually no value in the rest of the world because nobody wanted it. So so Blockbuster, again, I when you walked in a Blockbuster, 75, 85% of the things people rented came out in the last two weeks were Spider-Man, Gladiator, the big movies. And for us, it was reversed. We would get people Spider-Man if they wanted it, but we'd show them all the other great content that was available that they missed that was much less expensive. So so we, you know, our margins were very low. So it's got kind of a long answer, but those were a lot of the things going on for us. The intent was not to break cable. We uh, always believed that cable would play this vital role because you had live sports and you had live news. And those were things we, you know, had no intention of ever getting into. And what happened was obviously news was consumed in a different way over time with the advent of the internet and the and streaming and all the different ways that people get their news. And then sports really is the last is the last hook that keeps people paying for these other services that come into their house. And obviously, which we'll get into, Netflix just, you know, dip their toe into live sports. And really what you found is cable cutting, I think happened probably faster than everybody anticipated. Really is it's a really aging out process more than anything. Claire, there's so many things in that answer that we could just jump into and and pick out, but it's the removal of the problems that I hate. This is what I really hate about this thing that I do. And it's that ability to remove those pain points, isn't it? Whatever those are. There is something there about the identification of the problem, which I think is quite often overlooked. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a fantastic answer from Erin and it's a fascinating insight into where Netflix are as an organization. I mean, the reality are that they're a B2C tech company that can move very fast. They can be incredibly fan first and their mantra clearly, by the sounds of it, is give the customers what they want and make sure everything is is transparent, fair. And then as a result of that, the, the revenues will come. Now, obviously, in a sport context, there's a lot more complexity around if you're a governing body, what your role is within sport. It's not just a pure B2C play. Obviously, you want crowds to come to tournaments and events, but it's much broader than that, isn't it? It's about grassroots. It's about growing the game. It's about winning certain trophies, et cetera, driving revenue. And obviously, as part of that, the fan experience. And I think that's a fascinating um, difference where with where sport sits is that primarily sport over, over time has been more B2B because the sources of income coming through are through sponsorship, through broadcast. And actually some of the more traditional B2C elements have been outsourced in many ways. So whether it be Ticketmaster running tickets, Fanatics running merchandise, et cetera. And so that kind of absolute laser focus that Erin's talking about and that ability to be, ability to be completely fan first isn't something that I think necessarily sports organizations across the world would wake up first and think about. It would be part of the mix, but it wouldn't necessarily be first. But it's a fascinating thing to think through if we were to flip. And the reality is right now, there isn't probably the same burning platform because if Netflix weren't iterating their product and they weren't exactly meeting fans, customers' needs, then they wouldn't come back and obviously 
you know, their business would fold. Think about the Glazers at Man United, you know, almost sort of regardless of what they're doing within a, within a, a range, fans are still going to fill out the stadium. So for them, them, there isn't that burning platform of if we improve the experience by X amount, it's going to have a demonstrable impact on the crowds because the crowds are already coming. And so that's that weird difference there with, with sport where there almost isn't the, nece- isn't the necessity to really enhance and improve that feeling experience day in, day out. But at some point, you know, who knows, looking to the crystal ball, people are speculating, like, is that tipping point going to be with Gen Z, with women's um, sport, bringing through a different type of live experience, a different type of audience you might have to attract? Is that share of sessions within sports fans going to be more threatened through gaming, through other forms of entertainment, and our sport going to have to is sport going to have to start to be a little bit more reactive, a bit more agile. We're not there yet, but there could be some learnings that we could take from from this model certainly going forward. So yeah, absolutely fascinating. I, I also think just that that clarity of purpose and focus is something that that all businesses can learn from, regardless of the industry. What you've said there is that there is a complacency built into the DNA of sport because the fan as you say, will always turn up. I'm a Spurs fan. I will turn up. It can be a rubbish experience. It can be, you know, but that's not what I'm there for. Now, that's a simplified view of the fan. That's a view of an inner core of the fan around a particular club. And it's historical. I'm of a certain age. I know I don't look it, but I am. So there is a history there in terms of why I am a Spurs fan. And that is replicated across sport in lots of different ways. So there's a couple of things. One is when you get beyond that level in terms of the avid fan, and the conversation is always is moving now in sport to the global fan. The clubs are Man United's, Barcelona, Real Madrid. They are, you know, the Dallas Cowboys. They are all seeking to be relevant to a fan base beyond their locality and, and beyond the me in this question. So that's where the complacency, I think, is probably a, a dangerous thing. It's also when the, the club and the experience becomes digital, it becomes a bit more like, a bit more Netflix-like. And I'm just wondering how, and I guess we're getting to service as a differentiator between clubs. Now, whether that's how I experience the club, how they personalize the content, how they do what Netflix does and, and surprises me with stuff that I didn't know I wanted, but actually, oh, okay, yeah, I'm there. So, or from an am more of an Amazon view of personalization, which is okay, you're going to sell me stuff that I want immediately and I want it delivered, you know, the next day, if not sooner. So I'm just trying to, we're painting a picture of sport in one lens, and then you can start to see that actually very quickly, as you know, to Aaron's point, things shift. And I don't know how you get from one to the other. Erin, first of all, do you think that framing's true about sport? Do you think there is a fundamental difference between sport and entertainment? Or, do, or am I misreading entertainment? Is there a still a that? Well, I, I, I think you're spot on. I think it's, it's really hard for my brain to figure out what, what is going to be the tripping wire for them. But it, it, you cannot take your customers for granted for, for only so long. At some point people will push back. And if you look, at least in the United States, the cost of a ticket to go to a live game now, it, 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 we used to think of sports, it was middle America, okay? It was 
you know, a family going to the football game and tailgating, whatever. And now you you simply can't afford it. You either you it's just it's it's cost prohibitive. It's just getting out of hand. So so to me, that complacency, you will it will happen. There's an we all know there's an endless number of case studies of people who are leading and they're so far in front that they think I don't have to invest in my customers anymore. I don't have to invest in anything. I'm just skating along, printing money. And then they're, they're, you know, their day comes. So I think that ultimately just because you can get people to come doesn't, and, and I will say not give them the best experience doesn't mean you should. So, you know, Disney's a really good example here. I mean, I'll bring up Disney. If you think about those parks, which costs a lot of money, they deliver. They do not take for granted that you as a family have saved your money for seven years to show up at the park. And you can show up at the park and it could look pretty good and you'd still have a great time, but it's perfect. It is It is perfect. And they want it to be perfect. And they have thought about everything. And you think about like waiting in line. You can wait in line to get into the stadium and nobody's chopped liver. I, I don't know. I've never had waited in line to get to a game where they're spritzing me with water if it's 100 degrees or they're, you know, handing out little snacks for kids while they're waiting. Like, it doesn't happen. At Disney, half of the experience can be waiting in line. I mean, they can they can make it joyful. And so ultimately, really, I think there's don't be complacent because, you know, it, it will pay. The other thing is you're not always going to have a winning team. So that, at least in our experience, there is loyalty, but it's not you don't have the same leverage. You don't have the same revenues. There's a lot you miss by not having a winning team. So sure, when you have a winning team, you can, you can make people wait all day in line, but think the tides change. And so if you think about a good example is the Lakers, who are now a global brand. The Lakers were lousy, but the owner reinvented the sport. I mean, he, I don't know if you know, but like that's where cheerleaders in, in the United States came from, which are now a critical part of the entire experience. and the stadium and the different food and the being able to drink. There were so many things that came because that owner said, I'm going to make this a, a more entertainment experience. And it adds a lot if you spend a lot of money and your team loses by 28 points, right? You, you aren't as bitter because you've had an entire uh, day of it. So, so sort of reiterating, focus is critical in all the things we're talking about. Focusing on what you're good at, focusing on what your customers want, and focusing on what you're good at. And so I think that that, you know, you have focus, you also have respect for your customer and you just always have to have your eyes wide open. Trust me, Blockbuster didn't see us coming. And by the time they did, we weren't even focused on Blockbuster. We were, we had moved on. And I think that, you know, there's stories, there's a million stories in history of uh, taking your customers for granted and it and it not going well. I think it's it's really fascinating when you think about the digital landscape here because you know we've talked about filling stadiums and and that's what a lot of the sports organizations out there are, are fantastic at but when it comes to more of a level playing field you know how you provide a digital experience you your point richard to an international or local audience which is going to compete with the experiences that they're used to getting from a netflix from a sky from a disney from a facebook etc that that is much more obvious there where the experience is going to be 
differentiated and poorer, frankly, unless in sport that they're going to put the same level of, of feedback loop, frankly, in with, with their fans. Putting that time and effort into understanding how are different cohorts of fans engaging with my team, with my club, with my sport? And how am I making sure that I'm playing to those groups effectively? And frankly, to Aaron's point, giving them what they want. You know, whether it be ease of accessing tickets, whether it be ease of buying a shirt, whether it be ease of, of watching a video about my favorite player, all those things are very judgeable versus other industries now for fans. And that's where I think probably sport's going to be more exposed over the next um, few years rather than perhaps the, the in-stadia experience where, frankly, as we've said, it's probably enough at the moment in a lot of cases. Just going to say, you did raise something too, which I, I haven't done the work on this, but the aging of the population is going to really, I, I don't know how it manifests itself, but that will be, the, I think, the biggest challenge to these traditional, you know, you really have to wonder a 28-year-old 20, now, are they... Are they going to invest 15% of their income to buy season tickets to their local games or 40% of their, you know, disposable income? And so that loyalty, to your point, right, you're so loyal to your team. Do you feel the same loyalty coming back from the team to you? And I I, I don't know. I, I think people are used to turnkey convenience technologically. And you know, look at the movie theater business. I mean, people can watch movies at home and they are watching movies at home. And I'm an, an avid moviegoer. I, I'm not sure you know anybody who goes to the movies as much as I do. And, and I just don't go the way I used to. It's really hard to beat the convenience now of being home. And again, movie theaters, I'm not going to say took it for granted, but it's 20, for us, it's $25 to go to a, the theater. That's before you've eaten and you do all those things. And you just sort of say, wow, there's five of us. It's an economically compelling winning proposition to watch TV, you know, watch a movie at home. And so I think the aging is really going to take its toll on traditional sports. And, and popcorn makes sort of printer ink look quite good value, doesn't it? You know, it's just astonishing how expensive, but I always, I always, it staggers me that that's still a game that they play. Let's get into the WWE question, because I think within it, there's also a couple of other things that we can develop. So. Erin, were you surprised when you read the headline or you knew in advance or whatever it was that you saw that they'd done a, you know, a massive deal with WWE and for ages now, sport has said, oh, are they coming? Are the streamers going to get into the game of paying for rights in the same way as cable did? And is that the game that's going to take place? And then this news broke and there's a few caveats to this deal, I think, that that is worth you know that are worth picking out. I think it, what it isn't is as interesting in terms of what it as as what it is. Were you surprised? How and from a strategic perspective, can you see how they got there? When I look at Netflix, and obviously I don't think of it as a live appointment of view experience because that's how it's always grown up as a something I'll just watch the box set. I'm just curious in terms of what the implications are it must have been a conversation way back when about what live means for netflix in whatever form that takes but i don't know what the second level implications would be on the organization early on it, streaming right all of our pipes used to be this thin prior to streaming and it was sufficient we all had enough to to exist and we you know honestly netflix started clogging the pipes and it got worse and worse and now we all have good streaming so Live wasn't even on the radar as an option because 
we would never have risked the experience and then people buffering and, and, and missing things. So, so, and they've come so far. So technologically, it's not as daunting and it's, it's true. It's, it's appointment, but I, I agree with everything Claire said about the fact that you've really, it, you know, it's about what watching it at a, a later time, but good for them. Like this, what a great way to figure out how much people are willing to engage and watch it because, and watch it when it's live versus on demand, but it's, you know, it's three hours a week, 52 weeks a year. I mean, it's funny, I, you know, you read the $5 billion and you're like, $5 billion. It's like, oh, Netflix, they, they just overpaid to get the rights, which they do. It feels like overpaying, but it's smart money. And then you say, okay, well, it's 10 years. That's, that's okay. It's 500 million a year. Right. And then you think about how many, that's 18 million customers every week. And you start to run the numbers. At least I was doing this in my, in my head. And it's, it's not as daunting a number as you think. And now the people are on the service, right? So they, they tune in live and you have, sure, you have a bunch of people who sign up for Netflix who want to have otherwise. And then it's your job to sell them the service. So I think it's, it's interesting. Look, I don't, it is obviously very new. I mean, they did some other very light live sport events, a golfing event or whatever, but it's part of their thinking in terms of what's going to be next. Their feature film um, strategy has changed a bit. I think you'll see less of the big Hollywood films and um, more acquisitions. Um, And so this is, this is new. And I know games, which are live, right? You're interacting in a live way are going to be a big uh, part of what they do, whether they want it to or not wasn't you know it was meant to be one of many things that you subscribe to and and they're so big now which good for them that they can potentially be everything you need um and they're maybe figuring out how to get there advertising is is another part of the netflix bundle if we're going to call it that but there is a layer now of ad funded was that something that was resisted internally do people did they define themselves differently? They didn't want to go that route because they've got they've gone relatively late and it just feels like they've gone being pushed and shoved down that road. Right. I think, yes, we never wanted to do advertising. And part of it was when we were part of it was kind of like taking what felt like free money. We we looked at it really early on in the DVD business where people were just going on to get their DVDs. So whether you had an ad at the top or not wasn't changing their experience. So it was free money. Like we begged. I mean, I was like, my studio said, can we just run trailers? You know, nope. Why not? That's not what we do. Like, we're going to have to change the website. We're going to have the ad thing. We're going to have to have dynamic. We're going to have the sales group. And I was like, oh my God, I used to, but you know, and so it was about focus. So ultimately, you know, selling advertising, look, they've been slow at getting their, their, advertising group and revenues built because it's a big deal. You can't just wake up and say, we're going to have advertising. And so ultimately there was resistance and, and the value proposition was sufficient. You know, they, our prices started so much lower. So how much lower do you really need to go and have advertising? And I think to the point that I brought up earlier, you, you're 260 million subs and you wake up and you say, how am I going to get growth? And I, I'm not going to get growth at $11 or $17 or a month. I need to go and and meet the audience where they are, especially when you're picking off subscribers. So in our family, there's five of us and I have three kids who don't live at home. And so as much as people say, oh, they cut back, like that was a, like, I forget, it was a like a 140% increase in my price. Like I went from $18 a month to at the time, I, I told my kids, you're all in the advertising bundle. I'm not paying <laughs> another $11 a person. And so- 
that you have to offer something less expensive. So I think they were pushed into it. I, I was not happy because it was very reactive to like a bad quarter and some bad numbers. I mean, that and, pa- and the password sharing, they could have gone after that. They should have gone after password sharing five years earlier, you know, when they were. Oh, don't don't do that. Don't tell them that. Yeah, I like password sharing. As I say, I quite often say that's like a middle class piracy, isn't it? Password sharing. It's the okay side of piracy. And just the final bit of that then is the advertising model has led them to look at sport in a different way. So presumably because always obviously sport live moments comes with a massive advertising opportunity. Is that part of it? Do you think one has led to the other? I I don't know enough about their thinking sure. to say that it would, but I will say there was one little thing in the announcement, and I was like, "This is so impressive," and it's the difference we I think between Netflix and others getting into sport, which was they know. Think about that that wrestling match. Okay, it has commercials built in. It always had commercials built in, right? Because it was on television. Now Netflix has an advertising group of people. So they have to run ads. So they need to program it for them. That's easy. That's what the wrestling's been doing for years. But they also have to program it for the other 95% of their audience. So in the announcement, they made a point of saying that Netflix will create programming during the commercial, effectively, they use better language, during the commercial breaks for the rest of their base. So that's a level of complexity that like, I feel like you could sign a deal and almost forget, you know, gloss over that they're going to have to fill the gaps, but with things that aren't so compelling that the audience that didn't get to see them aren't bitter. You, you, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, yeah. like, that's kind of crazy. And I believe in their ability to do that, but that's going to be, that'll be interesting and assembled. So, so I'm not sure that advertising led them there, although it may have been a part of a compelling, you know, maybe part of the deal was we have these advertisers, they're locked and loaded, they're paying a ton and, and we'll bring them with you. And that would be a kickstart to the economics of the deal. But I'll be very interested to see how they navigate that and whether they navigate it successfully or think this is way too hard. You know, I don't know. So I would say I wasn't surprised. Netflix is gigantic now. Well, I mean, they are 260 million subscribers. And at some point, you you have to say where is what where's the growth going to come from right so and they're thinking they're thoughtful and very a very smart group of people running the company who are thinking about new areas of growth sports is obviously one of them games will be a huge area for them which i think you'll see a lot more coming there so no i wasn't surprised i was i would say also not surprised and happy to see that it was not quite jumping out into professional football or, you know, but going into what they're good at, which is entertainment, right? So for us, wrestling is like entertainment sport. And so I think it's a great way for them to dip their toe in the water, albeit a $5 billion toe or football water. Having said that, it's 10 years. I mean, I, I was running the numbers in my head and you start to see that it's not as expensive as it may look. Um, when you think about the subscribers that they have, I think they have 17 million people watching it every single week, 52 weeks a year. So you also think about programming. You think about our football season is 18 games, right? So that's a lot of programming and a dedicated audience that that Netflix will tap into. I'm not sure it was a Netflix audience. So 
We recently have had streamers get into the sports space with football. We had an example with our playoff games about two weeks ago where they sold the rights. They had sold the rights to Amazon for once a week football, which has gone pretty well. But they sold for one of our playoff games to a very small streaming service, Peacock. And there were two games on that day. And the one that was on traditional cable had 38 million people watch it. And the one that was on Peacock had 3 million people. So that felt, I can tell you, that felt like non-patriotic. I don't know how else to put it. It just felt like that was not allowed. Anti-American. Anti-American. Very much. I think we all know all that that they're doing is chasing a dollar, the NFL and everybody else. But it just felt so blatant because you had to sign up to watch the game. It, I think it hurt a little and there's a, a lot of people who were, who were miffed about it. So, so I think that we've seen companies doing it. So I think this is a great way for them to have gotten into the space. I wasn't surprised. And it's a win for the, for the WWE too, because I mean, Netflix has 260 million subscribers and right. Wrestling has this very, very dedicated, but very niche group of people who are now people are going to be exposed to it. So I think it could be, it's, it could be a real win-win. Claire, what was your view on the deal? Yeah, it's fascinating. I think as soon as it came out, obviously there was a lot of chat in the industry. Is this the start of something much bigger, much more significant move from Netflix into to live sports? I mean, it's, you're always judged right at the beginning when you give an opinion like this and can only be uh, degrees of, of wrong. But my sense is it's not such a significant moment at this point. I think Netflix have been very intentional about what they've bought. It comes back to Erin's original point at the top of the pod, which is they've got real clarity of of purpose and, and focus. My guess is that they've looked at target markets and they're either looking at incremental subscribers from a target market that they've got in mind and WWE hits that very well or it's about retention of subscribers um, within that. But if you think about what WWE is, to Erin's point, it's it's entertainment. It's scripted which takes the jeopardy out so it's less appointment to view. And therefore, if you watch it on a delay, it's still entertainment. Whereas if you bought a live football match and you knew the results, it's, it's less exciting, it's less interesting, you're, me- you're less likely to go back and watch that, that full 90 minutes. So it works much better as a type of product within Netflix than a, than a normal kind of, of live sport. And it kind of applies to, to their mantra of, sort of content for everyone at any time. You can still consume it in your own time and have fun and be able to talk about it with your mates. And it's also global. So it's not going to be siloed into one market, like if, if there was to buy into Premier League, et cetera. So it makes sense. I also think as well, because of the scripted nature of it, there's, there's frankly just less risk. Areas obviously run the numbers on the 10-year deal. The other way to look at it is to go, not knowing the ins and outs of the deal, but from a, from a bystander's point of view, the DAZN, Anthony Joshua, deal looked less attractive once he started losing, which was fairly quickly after it had been signed, where in this case, it's not really about the outcome of WWE. It's about the process of watching the entertainment. So there isn't as much risk here for Netflix when they bought into a specific boxer, for example, and then they're like following that through, like, you know, is scripts entertainment that, that should last the course with the, with the fan base that it has. So it's a fascinating play. It's an interesting play. I'm not sure yet it's a signal of much bigger things to come, but I suppose as all of us, it's a bit of a watch this space moment for us. Erin, okay, there's a customer, an audience question here, and it's a data question. Let's 
assume that there is something here that is a mark of the future and other sports will start to line up and they'll do a Formula One deal or something. Let's just play a thought experiment with that. What does that mean in terms of what sports might learn about their own audience? Because to this point, they haven't known much because as you said, Claire, they've devolved that to third parties quite often in terms of that granular data, the stuff that Netflix knows about me is much more than Spurs knows about me. How is that going to work? What's missing? And what does teams and leagues gain from being more like Netflix when it comes to a customer understanding process? I think ultimately it's a question of personalization. And what we understand now, as we've talked about earlier in this pod, is that fans are looking to be better understood. And there's a sort of value in, value out piece. So you know, fans are increasingly, I suspect, looking for a level of understanding from the club that they support to be played back to them because of the money they're spending, the time they're spending, etc. And so that's where obviously data and the approach that Netflix would take is really applicable, particularly through digital channels. Now, I think, you know, thinking about the pod that Tier and Wyndham did a few weeks ago, which I really enjoyed listening to, you know, that was talking about hyper-personalization, you know, one-to-one and getting that level of data at that frequency and that cadence, frankly, is unreachable for a lot of sporting organizations. But that doesn't mean there isn't somewhere in between that. I think, you know, sometimes it's held up personalization, hyper-personalization mm. as something that only certain organizations can ever achieve. And it's not for sport. That is absolutely not the case. And it's something that I personally and Gemba are incredibly passionate about bringing to the industry because you can get to one to some and that still be really interesting and really appealing to a fan base. And you don't even have to do it through data, frankly. You can do it through research. I think the starting point is, is asking the right questions of your current fan base or of a future fan base. What do you want? How do you engage with us at the moment? What drives your passion? oh, that's interesting. Your passion is driven through heritage or it's driven through player stories or it's driven through skills on the pitch. And then you use that and you create a narrative around that and you could create campaigns that talk to those different passion drivers. And you can do that in a way that is through quant surveys, qual focus groups, and of course, ideally through first party data or even social data. And utopia is you wrap all of those things together and you get to a point where on an app, when your fan opens an app, it talks to them as if they, the, the club understands what they'd previously interacted with. Oh, right. You know, you bought a ticket the other day. Well, we've already loaded this one into the basket with the number of seats in the area that you like to sit, or you bought a shirt before. We've pre-populated it with your favorite number and your favorite player. Or something more Netflix akin, which is you watch that video. We've noticed that you like this type of content, so we'll serve you more that's like that. And obviously, the more personalized you get, the more sophisticated your level of data needs to be and the analytics that sit around that. And we're doing some of that work with one of our clients at the moment in that next best action space. And it's really exciting. But I also get as excited for sports fans about the more obvious, the more basic understanding different cohorts of customers globally and locally. And I do think there's white space for sport to do a lot more in that entry level personalization space. And yes, there are learnings from Netflix, but it doesn't have to be from a juggernaut as big as Netflix. It could be from other businesses that aren't so technically savvy. It's just probably more about 
have you got the purpose and the focus on giving customers and giving fans what they want? And if it becomes central to your organization and that's an ambition that you want to be able to meet, then actually the, the doing it is, is in some ways almost easier or as easy as the mindset shift. And I think it's the mindset shift that is taking the time. And, and we're in that transition period at the moment, but that's what's so exciting. Yes, a lot of sports organizations may continue to be B2B in the fact that they outsource some of their customer contact relationships, et cetera. But if the mindset is, we are here to serve our supporters, our fans, and in order for those for us to understand and serve them better, they need to give some more information to us. It's a two-way relationship, which I've heard Juliet Slot at Arsenal talk about on stage. Then that gets really exciting and you can start to, to have baby steps towards some of these big tech giants. If you think about the broadcasters, the biggest revenue stream for at least here for most teams is the broadcast broadcasting rights for the game. And ultimately, if you can tell them who's watching in a way that they don't know. So, you know, if you have traditional cable, you don't know who in your household is watching. It's sort of a joke here. No one that we've ever I've ever met in my life has ever been asked. Like they, they, nobody gets polled. We don't understand how they they have these statistics because no one alive has ever been surveyed. I, I can't wait to be called and asked and tell. And so, you know, here we watch 50% of the viewers, apparently, of an NFL football game are female. And it's like the advertisers haven't gotten the memo. So if you watch a football game, it is, it is football and then it's beer, Viagra, beer, Viagra, back to the game. Okay, and you kind of look and you think, and so in the most simplistic way, let's not make it to, to Claire's point. It doesn't have to be so personalized. If you're on Netflix and you sign in and you have your profile and so they know whether you're male or female, let's take it to just 50, 50. There's just a fork in the road. They can show me an ad that's relevant to a female or they can show me an ad that's relevant to a male. I mean, it could be that simple. And imagine for traditional broadcasting that they're, they're running ads that are, let's, for the sake of this, are not relevant to half of the people watching it. So, so you know, gathering information like that, whether it's through Netflix or to your point, doing research, just caring enough and thinking about it, 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 it will pay you back in spades because if the broadcasters get better returns on their ads, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's very, you know, that kind of stuff is where, you know, Netflix obviously has, it is a, it is a data company. It is a tech company, to be honest. Like, and it's a it's a it's also a data driven company and they can use them. That's where I'm excited about the advertising. I don't know when and it's going to evolve, but it will be different and it'll be more valuable. I think we all appreciate it's a little creepy when you get ads that are so personalized to you. But somewhere in between, they they are throwing an ad up and they already know a certain amount about me or whatever. They know I'm a female. Why would they give me this ad? Um, to the crazy personalization. There's a world in between where I think people are happy to to get ads that are relevant to that. You mentioned there about WWE as a an audience development, you know, a growth area. They're bringing it's a new audience. They they've reached a certain stage. Claire, the, I mean, the obvious point that we're you know, you're both making is that there is a growth audience for sport, but it's it's not people who look and sound like me. It's 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 women, it's younger people, it's different. It's a much more diverse audience. Why is it taking so long for people to say, yes, of course, that's where growth for sport is going to be? But it just seems like it's, you know, it seems like an obvious 
question, but I don't know whether or not people need more evidence. I don't know how much evidence you need. I think there's a, are we asking the right questions? And are we asking them at a level where that data can kind of bubble up or that story can bubble up to the top to kind of sit across the industry? I've no doubt it's being asked in, in sort of silos within certain organizations, like help me understand your fan base. We've been working with a couple of, having a couple of conversations at this space at the moment where it would be specific to my context. What is the overlap? As an example, what is the overlap between my traditional committed sports fans and of, of the men's, of a men's football team and um, the sports fans of, of our women's team? What's the overlap? How incremental is that audience? Help me understand the differences, the similarities, and how I best approach servicing both needs um, from an experience point of view, from a um, sponsorship point of view. So they are bubbling up in part. I think what would be really excited if we could start to ask those questions more holistically at a, at a broadcast level, for example. So who's viewing what, when, how, and how does that differ? And the data's out there. Like, yeah, we can, we can get to that. It's just you know, part, of it, part of it is about making sure those questions are being asked at, at the right level and, and getting the right partners in to, to solve for them. But I have to say, I feel like this is the year, Richard, we're going to crack crack that question about who who is the audience. I think there's been enough conversations either on podcasts and in various forums where there is this real desire to understand that incrementality because obviously where you have incremental audience, that then drives additional revenue. So that's it's a win if you can understand that. But it's also about, you know, well, should we have a dedicated channel to serve a specific audience or is it okay to remain within a kind of a broader sports channel and we know that, that that audience is similar enough or there's enough of an overlap that a piece of content can play to to, to a diverse um, set of eyeballs or less diverse set of eyeballs. So I think that, to answer your question, like, yes, currently it's a data thing, but I think it's really more strategic than that. It's like, are we asking the right questions and are we perhaps collectively as, as a set of industries going like, how could we solve for this more easily? And it's sort of a, a tide that lifts all boats piece. I would say too, one of the things, and this is just an observation, that the people in the, the, the stakeholders in the business right now are mature older companies, broadcast, cable, right? These are old school and they're less, they're far more risk averse to take a chance. So if you often read like, why, why aren't we watching, you know, women's soccer that the same amount as men's? I mean, this comes up all the time. First, it starts with why are women getting paid as much? And it's like, well, not as many people watch it. Well, why are many as many people watching it? Not as many people are interested. It's a total chicken and the egg thing. And the reality is, if somebody took Thursday night prime time and said, we're going to show a women's soccer game, I believe people would watch. And then they'd say, boy, this is the, the people who have not watched it before. This is totally compelling. And you'd spin upward. But the problem is they're not willing to take a chance and really invest in the sport and take the short-term, you know, losses while they're building it up. And so then what happens is then they can justify because people are watching it. We're not going to put as much promotion and money behind it. And to your point, I think they have to be more strategic. They have to look, step back, invest in the future, think about how to do it. And imagine, I mean, here you find that sometimes people in industries, they will they will not have them at the same time. So universities started to do this. Instead of having men's and women's soccer, 
play in the fall. They have men's soccer in the fall and women's in the spring. So if you are an avid soccer fan, you have a longer year where you can be watching games. There's there's enormously strategic decisions that can be made to help um, build a, a sport that is so compelling, but we don't have enough viewership around. And that and that this is just a male female thing versus talking about also other sports that are uh, less visible. So let's look at Netflix. Do you think, Erin, that Netflix has won? Because in in sport and in entertainment, there is this winner takes all, and in tech, there is this idea that you know the flywheel, etc. Mm-hmm. You just get bigger and bigger to the point that you're un. Yeah, you know, your defense is very hard to attack you. Is that where Netflix are, do you think? I think that, yes, I, I would say insofar as what what everyone is going to go through in the next year, two years, three years is waking up and saying, I have so many su- subscriptions, which ones am I going to cut? That, that, you know, everything is cyclical. If you look like people have separate channel, you know, they have cable and all we all want is I don't watch 168 channels. I only want eight. I would only, I'd like to pay less rates. So then it's like, okay, we're going to make that fit. We're going to break cable and you can pay for Disney. You can pay for the network. And then you do it. And what two things happen. One, you add it up and maybe it, you're still spending the same amount of money. And two, you're like, I can't manage all this. If somebody could just help pull it all together and manage it for me. And then here we back are. And by the way, so you'll see that happen even more and more where you're paying Somebody and somebody is in between you and your services. But as it pertains to, I have to cut one, two, three services, you're not going to cut Netflix. So, yes, I believe they've won. One of the things we purposely did at the advent of streaming was spend a lot of money, every penny we could generate. And it really was a DVD business that was generating all the, you know, the profit for the company that got invested in streaming. And it was like, invest every penny in content to sort of build a moat, right? And if you look now, Netflix spends more on content. You know, at least this was true two years ago. I haven't looked at numbers, but then all the other studios added together on all their content. They meant movies, TV, everything. So it's a staggering uh, amount of money. And so recently, at the same time that this sports comment came out, there was more sharing of that Netflix is licensing from their competitors. And the biggest one is Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers were vehement. I mean, I don't know without using bad words. They were, we will, I will die before I license content to Netflix. They once made a comment on one of their earnings calls, like they're like the Albanian army, like they just won't go away and whatever else it was, which became like a whole thing for us as as employees. But ultimately, they just announced that they've licensed Sex in the City to Netflix, which is one of their crown jewels. Now, I get it. They have all the rationalizations. But at the end of the day, when you're there, everybody is struggling and Netflix is standing there with a checkbook and Netflix made a comment in their earnings call, we're so happy and we want everybody to know we're open for business, right? So, so you look and you say, well, you know, what do I do? And so there's a lot of talk about the competitors feeding the beast. Um, ultimately, part of what, part of the reason, so building a moat, right? Which is we are going to spend so much that it's hard for anybody else to get in the business. But also we are not going to be attached to what old traditional companies are. So exclusivity was huge for all of these services for years. Like, oh, I can only, I have to sign up for HBO if I want to watch Sex and City. That's the only way you can get it. And so we used to go 
early on with our streaming deals, we'd go to, let's say, a content creator and say, you know, we we would love to license this. And they'd say, oh, we have a deal with Showtime. Showtime's paying us. I'm going to make something up. A billion dollars a year. We'd say, okay. So we'd go to Showtime and say, listen, we'll pay half if you just let us have the content on Netflix. And at that point, we were 40 million subscribers, right? And they were, they'd, and so we didn't feel like a threat. And they're like, wait, 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 you'll pay half? And we'd say, actually, actually, we'll pay, we, let's pay 1.2 billion, we'll pay half, okay? So you save $400 million. And they'd say, well, why are we going to pay more? And they'd say, we'll tell you. And then they'd go back to the person who had the content and say, we'll pay 1.2, but you, we're, two of us are going to have it. And they'd be like, okay. I mean, and it was like, that was, I'm telling you, exclusivity was the entire business was built on it. And we were like, why? why? Why does it have to be exclusive? Just questioning basic things that had been around forever. So getting creative uh, about that. So I think Netflix is, you know, obviously just how big that Netflix has gotten becomes a, a mode and, and, and declares them a winner because nobody can catch up. And in terms of their ability to be uh, nimble, to, to step away from old rules, content freedom, because it's not on broadcast, they'd say, sure, you can have nudity and swear, or do all those things that we couldn't do before. We're going to give you creativity. Creative freedom was a huge thing that Netflix was giving in, in an enormous way, yeah, you know, for years. But they're also smart people. They're not complacent. So if, yes, three days ago, you could say they're the winner, but is it going to last? Because just because they're big, and then they say, oh, we're going to get into the sports space. Oh, we're looking at the gaming space. So they're really thinking about other ways to stay ahead. So, yes, I would declare them the winner. I think the market in the last week has declared them the winner after their announcement earlier in the week, a huge quarter. And just in terms of a lot of the things that they've done. But again, the, the objective is not to replace all those things because it's not. Remember, we paid $175 a month for cable, okay? So if you cut your cable, you have $175 in your pocket to spend. And let's say for the sake of this, you don't want to spend, you're $100. Well, the most you're going to spend, you can spend on Netflix is $20. So you do have the ability to say, uh, Netflix doesn't have to be the winner at the exclusion of others. It just, they just happen to be the first and most important subscription. And then I'm going to add and create my own little, like we said, personal cable service. I'm going to have YouTube television, you know, for my live. I'm going to have this and this, and I can put together my own portfolio. Such a fascinating way of looking at things, isn't it? Like if you were to cut a subscription, it's not going to be Netflix. You'd be cutting something else. You wonder if you apply that same thinking to, to sport as it relates to share of, share of time, share of sessions. So, you know, I was doing a bit of math myself. So 168 hours in a week, 40 you're sleeping. Or 40 are working, maybe a bit over 40 are sleeping. So you've got about 80 odd hours to play with in terms of other stuff you can do in your life. And some of that will be family related, but there'll be some discretionary time in there that you can spend on, on sport, entertainment, et cetera. And it would be an interesting exam question, I think, for sport to say, okay, so in the next five years, if that, that, that time is, is capped, right? So how am I going to redistribute? that time is it going to go is it going to remain with with live sport in terms of attendance question mark over if i've got to travel an hour there and back to a stadium have a vaguely grotty experience getting there standing in a queue i'm not getting the disney treatment in terms of queue theory being applied to me and the live entertainment experience is all right 
but I'm starting to notice other forms of entertainment have caught up slash overtaken it. That's sort of a question mark there. And then as it relates to watching, okay, so let's take Sky as an example. You've now got fantastic highlights on your phone, which takes sort of two and a half minutes to watch. And I'm already up to date with Kansas City Chiefs at the weekend. I'm up to date with Man United, sadly for me, perhaps losing again or Marcus Rashford doing something silly. You can get that in a snapshot and that's going to create time to spend elsewhere on, on a different form of entertainment. It is going to be really interesting over this next period of time. And I'd love to apply that thinking to the world of sport and to, to get us thinking, like, are we doing enough to retain the rights that we have over the, that share of time? Uh, or is it going to start to, to go in a different direction? And what could we do differently? If we took the sort of restless development attitude that Netflix has, despite being so bloody successful and applied it to sport, then that could be really exciting and really interesting. I think there are two other factors influence sports too. One is sports has, it doesn't just have a loyalty, it has community. And if you look at, at the world in the last, I'll say 30 to 50 years, there's an, been an enormous loss in community, which is driven by, I'll, I'll say two big things. One is loss of religion. Religion was a community for people for, for, you know, forever as you grew up. And the second is people moving away from their homes. So you used to have a family community because everybody lived in a certain place. And now people take jobs and they disperse. So you have, and there's a variety of other things that have um, broken into community. And, but so those teams have community. And as we all have less community in our lives, so many people are working from home. So you've lost the community of work. There's so much, right? So in a way they have like this amazing thing as I'm sitting, the average person watches Netflix two hours a night. Okay. So that, that is a lot. That's 14 hours a week to your point on so few hours. So what do you do? What do you have? I have something where people feel part of a community and how do I take advantage of that? Which is in a whole other podcast. I'm like, how do you, you know, how do you exploit that enormous asset without exploiting it in such an obvious way. So, and then the second thing, which is really not that interesting, but we didn't touch on when we said what's going to trip sports up. And I think that the economy of the world is also going to play a role. If you look at, you know, the last 15, 20 years, really here since the eighties, we've had some bumps, but we've been on a tear. And so the average ticket price, the reason it went from $10 to $210 is because we've been so, it's been a lucrative time for our country and I think the world, and now you're seeing slowing growth everywhere. And to our point about cutting subscriptions, I think the question of how much you're really willing to spend for that one, it's all your subscriptions for the month equal that six hour outing to go to that game. So that's sort of touching on a previous, our previous conversation, but I didn't want to, didn't want to miss that. Yeah, I think what you've touched on as well around community and, and what sets sports apart is why it's such an incredible industry to work in and why I'm so excited. Like it's, it has all the ingredients to give the highest of highs in terms of emotion, the loyalty you feel, the community, the camaraderie, the excitement. It, it's got everything, tension, jeopardy, etc. It has all of the ingredients and it's probably not maximized what it can do with those yet. And so. I hope this is very much, you know, sort of, it's a positive, where can it go? 
you know, it has those ingredients. It hasn't, un- it hasn't tapped into everything it could yet in terms of personalization, in terms of perhaps that, that core focus on, on give the fans what they want. But my gosh, if it does, then, you know, it can really, really become that leader in that share of session, share of time, share of wallet. I was going to ask you, how many subscriptions do you have, both of you? I was, I was just thinking, as you were saying, which ones are going to go first? I get everything on subscription. There's, yeah. there's virtually, you know. But I will scary. say, in recent moment, mostly to signal to my kids that, that, that life can't go on like this, we took two or three that we nev- I never go and use. I probably use them for three TV shows a year and, and went down to the ad tiers. So I did get a phone call from one of my kids like, what the, I'm seeing ads. And I was like, yeah, you know what? We never watch Hulu. And so we're going to watch ads. We're going to see ads, you know? So I felt so good about myself doing that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've had two moments this week. One, one good, one bad on subscriptions. One bad was that my husband and I both realized we were separately subscribing to the Apple family subscription, mm-hmm. not realized double paying, neither of us using it. So that's sort of... Uh, an example of I think where we've we've gone down the subscription rabbit hole, but I have managed to pull myself out of Mindful Chef and answer a phone call finally to tell them to to stop hammering me. But it was a bit of a scary moment when we looked back through the other day, and, and you do wonder. You think, well, I haven't actually physically got the time to deploy against all of these subscriptions. They've just sort of come along for the ride over the over the last few years. So I think there will be a great cull in the Kelly household in twenty twenty four, and yeah. I, I imagine Netflix will be the one that I'll I'll keep alongside my sports sports subscription, but but we'll see. Claire, the the, the scary thing is if you haven't noticed that, then what's the chance of the, everyone else? You know, it's like I might have. <laughs> you're on my best bet on sorting out my the subscription. I will, in the interest of tying that to back to our theme of focus and giving people what they want and not taking advantage of your customer. When we had customers, we had customers who would sign up for the DVD business, probably streaming too, but DVD business, and they would never rent one movie. And we would charge them. Back then, it was $19 a month. And instead of just, don't get me wrong, we love those customers, okay? And we were like, you know, but we would reach out to them. Hey, why don't you rent a disc? What can we do to help you rent a disc? Because we knew at the end of the day, and this is a great example, in the short term, they were our best customers because they cost us nothing. But in the long term, they would figure it out and they would leave. And frankly, they'd be bitter. Even though they were the ones, it's like the gym membership, you sign up and you never go. Even though they signed up and then never rented a disc, they'd still be bitter about Netflix. So we would push them and try to get them to rent discs, which was going to cost us money because our revenue would stay the same, but we'd have costs of shipping them. Um, and it's the same with streaming. We know the people who stream more are happier customers. So stream, stream. So we push, push, push. So that's a great example of, to your point, if Apple had reached out to you and said, hey, we noticed that you guys, you have the same IP address or whatever, you would have on, you'd be evangelizing that. You'd be like, I had the best customer service experience. And you would tell everybody, you know, and that people, it's like companies just can't get in that mindset of, I cannot believe, you know, that I did that. I mean, and, and I know the five companies that have done it in my life, and I repeat the stories all the time because you're so surprised by it. So that's, a, that's another lesson in treating your customer with respect. It's interesting in sport because you just don't necessarily have that line of sight across what a fan is spending across the whole sporting ecosystem. 
And I think that's something interesting to reflect on as well. If you think, you know, a true B2C business fully understands the value equation with a customer. But if you're in sport and you're a club or you're a broadcaster, et cetera, you're not seeing all of the ancillary expenses that a fan is making to be a, let's say, Manchester United fan in my case, because I might buy the shirt via Fanatics and I might buy a ticket, I buy a ticket master or even my mate might buy it and I'll be watching it via a Sky Sports subscription. But that total cost to be a Man United fan, as well as my emotional, mental state, is, is not necessarily shown up in a bill. And there's maybe something there in that if you don't recognize necessarily the full cost of being a fan, you don't perhaps put the same level of, of investment into making sure they have a value for money experience, which might be harsh in a lot of cases. Because I know a lot of, a lot of sports organizations really do care about maximizing the, the experience and there's a lot of hard work that goes into it. But it is just an interesting dynamic to think, you know, in a Netflix point of view, they know exactly like money in, money out. They, they understand that equation that's not as transparently obvious in sport. As does Disney, because they own the rights of everything. You know, the jersey, like they're very aware of less, maybe specifically on a person level, but in the park, you get bracelets and they track, you know, so you have, they have the ability. I, we could spend a month on the amazing information they have, because imagine, you know, how long somebody stood in line before they decided, I can't wait any longer. You know what I mean? You know how many times I go to the bathroom, you know, I mean, you know, everything. So you can say, we can't let the line be more than 42 minutes, you know, or we're willing to have 15% loss because whatever, whatever it is. So anyway, yeah. I mean, it, look, we all know it, data information is empowering and it's just want to get more of it. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed it. Erin, thank you for your time. It was fun. And Claire, once again, thanks a lot. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Erin. 